and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we will be discussing the film The Witch. Creepy stuff. Yeah, you know, I was I was saying to this uh, to Scott downstairs before we started, shouldn't that be the the Vich? That was the original title with two capital V's. But indeed, are they capital V's or are they capital old-fashioned U's? So is that a W? No, I think they're V's. um... But V's were often used in the place of a U, that's my point. Yeah, uh, I don't really know. But I I assume the the, the double bit there is a a typesetting convention from the 17th century or, or maybe one of these things that typesetters did when they ran out of the correct letter. But whatever it is, I mean, it, it looks cool. Yeah. But before we get into the film, Chris Lackey and Greg Johnson, who have done a couple of Lovecraftian short films before, comic short films, have released a new one, which personally I think is probably their best to date, uh, called Pickman's Guest. I mean, the, the short films that they've done are all, they're inspired by various Lovecraft stories. They've done one inspired by uh, the statement of Randolph Carter. They've done one based on From Beyond. And this one, obviously, you know, from the, the title, is inspired by Pickman's model. But in each case, they take the premise of the story and then do a, a comedic twist on it. Oh, they're just fantastic. The production is really good. The acting is really good. And the, the comedy is, is wonderful. And they're short. And still gets them to mention mince pie dreams. It does indeed. <laughs> if you're a fan of the H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast and you like their sense of humour, then I think this encapsulates that really well. Yeah, and you, know, you, you touched on the production values, but I, I think it's worth going back and just restating that because we, we've seen a lot of Lovecraftian short films over the years made by, some, in some cases, semi-professional, in some cases just very enthusiastic amateurs. And... They tend to be of extremely variable quality. Uh, you can always tell that they're produced by, you know, or usually tell that they're produced by people who, you know, don't do this for a living. The acting is often, you know, a bit ropey. With this, I knit is just absolutely professional from start to finish. And there's some CGI used in it, and I think it's really pretty well done. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like Hollywood level, maybe, but it's it's pretty damn good. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, even aside from the fact that they're really funny, they are just some of the best-made Lovecrafting shorts around. Yeah, and so I, I, I thoroughly had a giggle. <laughs> Would have thought that 90 <laughs> Degrees made all the difference. <laughs> <laughs> and back on the publishing front, as I understand Mike mentioned it at Gen Con, um, the Two-Headed Serpents moved into art and layout now after the fin- final touches being done to the manuscript. Yeah, we had it back and had a quick skim over it for a few edits, and, yeah, I think it's... Uh, it's about there, isn't it, Scott? It is, yeah. Yeah, personally, I can't wait to see what the artwork looks like for this. <laughs> I, I think, you know, obviously uh, uh, we're a bit biased, but I think there are some fairly striking visuals at some places here, and I just really want to see what the art team does with this. And also, coming up later this year, we should have the next issue of The Blasphemous Tome. Now, we'd like to appeal to you, listeners and backers, to send us submissions for the next issue of our Lovecraftian fanzine, The Blasphemous Tome. We would welcome illustrations. We would welcome articles of whatever nature you would like to send to us. They need to be relatively short, no more than sort of, say, four or 500 words. If you want to get in touch with us with some sort of proposal of what you'd like to submit before you submit it, then that's great. Or just send us something. We can't guarantee we'll use it. 
but we may well do. And those ones that we use will receive a author's copy. And just to give a bit of context for that, in case you're not familiar with it, the Blasphemous Tome is the fanzine that we do for backers. Uh, so all Patreon backers, the good friends of Jack's Lies, get at least one copy of the Blasphemous Tome. It is a print-only publication, and the, we put out the first issue earlier this year. This will be issue two. What time is it now, Scott? It's time for the Lovecraftian word of the week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. Dread. A verb. One. To anticipate with apprehension or terror. Two. To fear greatly. Three. An archaic term. To be in awe of. It also qualifies as a noun. Great fear. Horror. Mm, Horror. Five. An object of terror. Six. Deep reverence. Also an archaic term. And as an adjective, you went for a triple bubble this time, didn't you? I did. I got greedy. On awesome! Or or awe-inspiring. You went for awesome again. I did. Okay. Yeah, I I, I was filled with awe. Ah. In a quite literal sense, then. (laughs) So this here word sees quite a lot of use, being used 48 times as dread and 67 times in its other forms, such as dreading, dreadful, dreaded, and so on. And this is quite a gentle word for Lovecraft's uh, lexicon. Usually when he's using words to inspire horror or describing emotional reactions to things, they tend to be associated with revulsion. They tend to be very visceral reactions. And this is a much kind of slower, um, more atmospheric... Yeah, it's it's the subtle version of the more you know, gut-punch versions that he uses elsewhere. I think it's certainly a word that we try to bring into our games. Not that we necessarily use the word, but that atmosphere of dread is one that you want to kind of try and build up. Yeah, I mean, personally for me, dread is sort of the ultimate expression of horror, that it's really easy to gross people out, it's comparatively easy to make people jump, but that that anticipation of horror, that dread of what might happen, that to me is the very pinnacle of horror. And that's exactly what we feel when we were watching tonight's topic, The Witch. Speak that, yourself, gradual, <laughs> that gradual build-up of horror and that sense of dread. Maybe for the last 15 minutes, maybe. <laughs> I think the cracks are already showing here. <laughs> we'll come on to this later. But how did Lovecraft use the word dread in his writings? Let's take a look. Or even a listen. That too. We're looking, they're listening. (laughs) From the nameless city. Not even the physical horror of my position in that cramped corridor of dead reptiles and antediluvian frescoes, miles below the world I knew and faced by another world of eerie light and mist, could match the lethal dread I felt at the abysmal antiquity of the scene and its soul. And who amongst us hasn't found ourselves in a cramped corridor full of dead reptiles at some stage? I think it's combined with this talk about dread. This just reminds me of every weekday morning when I wake up. In a corridor full of dead reptiles. Yeah. 
and from the Call of Cthulhu. March 23rd. The crew of the Emma landed on an unknown island and left six men dead. And on that date, the dreams of sensitive men assumed a heightened vividness and darkened with dread of a giant monster's malign pursuit, whilst an architect had gone mad and a sculptor had lapsed suddenly into delirium. And finally, from the Haunter of the Dark. They were the black forbidden things, which most sane people have never even heard of, or have only heard of in furtive, timorous whispers, the banned and dreaded repositories of equivocal secrets and immemorial formulae which have trickled down the stream of time from the days of man's youth, and the dim, fabulous days before man was. And now on to tonight's main topic, the witch. Please be warned that we are going to spoil the ever-lucking... Uh, the ever-lucking... <laughs> ever-lucking... <laughs> ever-lucking fudge. <laughs> Let me try How that. How that even work? Yeah. <laughs> In the upcoming discussion, we're going to go into a lot of plot details all the way through right to the end of the film. So if you haven't seen it, go off and see it before watching this episode, or resign yourself to the fact that we are going to spoil the ever-loving fuck out of the witch for you. What went we out into this wilderness to find? Leaving our country, kindred, our father's houses. Let's start off by giving a bit of background to this film. This was released in 2015, and it's the first feature film made by writer-director Robert Eggers. Um, it's set in New England in 1630, and it draws a lot on historical records and uh, folk tales of the time, and does so very, very well. It was made for an independent horror film, quite a large budget, $3 million, but it made $40 million at the box office. Even more impressively, it showed at the Sundance Festival, and it won the directing award for US Dramatic Presentation at Sundance in 2015, which, you know, for a horror film, is pretty damned impressive. Yeah, it took quite a long time to come to the a main cinema release, certainly in Britain, uh, but it was doing the rounds of the cinema art festivals. And in an interview, Robert Eggers talks about how this film could have been made for less money, but they, they kind of pushed it and, uh, you know, the, the three million. But it is quite a minimal set, really. It I is. mean, it's, it's just yeah. a place on the edge of a forest, but it's very convincing before we, we go down too far into the rabbit hole of details, let's take a look at what the film is actually about. So the film kicks off with a family before uh, a town tribunal of the, the kind of church or town elders, and they're being cast out of the town, basically challenged, will they give up their, not really give up their beliefs, but will they adhere to the, the manner of um, belief and worship that is accepted in the town at that time? It's not really spelt out in detail, but the implication there is that the father of the family, William, is a, a Puritan in a Puritan community, a plantation in Massachusetts. But the brand of Puritanism that they seem to be following isn't somehow strict enough for him. And yeah. he's, taught, he's accusing them of not being true Christians and railing against their restrictions. He's like Puritan plus one. Yes. <laughs> and he's got a family, 
So there's uh, the, the husband and father, William. There's the wife, Catherine. Their eldest daughter, Thomasin. Son, Caleb. Thomasin would be kind of 13, 14, I would think. I, I, I thought she was possibly meant to be a bit older. The actress who plays her is actually in her 20s, but um, the, uh, I think she was probably meant to be at least 15. And Caleb, what would you say, is about 12, something yeah. like that. Uh, there are twins, Mercy and Jonas, who I would guess would be about five, six years old, and baby Samuel. So this scene, as you referred to, Matt, is quite brief. Uh, we get the sense that they're no longer welcome in the town and they're quite certainly the father is quite glad to say okay well we're not having any of this we're going we're going to make our own way thanks see ya and we see them leaving the town with their horse and wagon the family there's a lovely shot there of the of the gates closing mm. and some native american indians kind of walking up the street and looking back, and it's just kind of leaving all that behind. Yeah, and it's just a few seconds, but it's a very powerful shot. But then they head off to their own little slice of heaven. They find this bit of unspoiled wilderness, uh, some pastures by the edge of some woods, and decide that this is where they're going to build their home. Big, ominous, deep, dark woods. Yeah, and the music at this stage is pretty ominous. And the music throughout this film is is damned impressive. There's lots of screeching strings and uh, vocal chants, and it, it feels like period music, but wrong and ramped up and spent, yeah, it, like something out of a scary fairy tale. There's a number of times the music reminds me of the Ligotti music in uh, 2001, the high-pitched singing kind of choral voice that you hear when they see the black monolith but they build their farm here and it's a it's a fairly simple structure uh, they've got a, a goat shed as well and a barn and a uh, yeah, pen for the chickens. They've, they've run some cornfields and they're starting to set up their lives there. But almost immediately, I mean, this is barely five minutes into the film, things start going badly wrong. Badly wrong. Thomason takes the baby Samuel out uh, by the stream, or no, to, to a little pasture. Yeah, not and, so far from the woods. Yeah, just on the edge of the woods. And basically plays peekaboo with him. So this is the eldest daughter just crouched down above the baby who's on a on a cloth there. Peekaboo, there you are. Covering her face, then taking her hands away, and the child's laughing and giggling. Does it three times, third time, no baby. Yeah, this was great actually watching this film in our front room where we've got Echo set up our Indian ring neck. Because, of course, peekaboo is one of the very few words he says. <laughs> so he was joining in. It was like, suddenly, baby gone. Peekaboo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all right. I've got him. <laughs> I hadn't thought of this as a film for audience participation, but there you go. <laughs> it's, it's like the Rocky Horror Picture Show for parrots. Yeah. <laughs> they can put that on the poster. They could. <laughs> then we get to see what happens with baby Samuel. And this is kind of a surprise to me. It's like, all oh, the baby's gone missing... And now we're going to have some sort of distress and inquest and so on into what mysterious thing could have happened. But no, no. we see a female figure going through the woods in a red cloak with the baby. 
Yeah, and taking her back to... Oh, sorry, taking the baby back to her shack in the woods where she plays with the baby for a little bit, then she gets a sharp knife out. And this is an elderly woman. Yep. Naked Uh, woman. Yes. And then we see her, you know, having taken the knife to the baby, basically pounding this red substance uh, using a, a mortar and pestle. And producing this this red paste, which then she starts smearing on herself as flying ointment, and this big stick, which she also like a broomstick. It is, yeah. And, and then the yeah you know, the last shot of this is her getting on the broomstick and flying out the door, and it's and we see her silhouetted against the sky. It's clearly a yeah. witch. I missed this scene completely. Seriously, I, I when I watched the DVD, I remember nothing of this. This Seriously? was about six or seven yeah. minutes into the film. Wow, I honestly must have completely blanked that because I wouldn't have said that the first hour and hour and a quarter was pretty dire. I would have remembered that bit. <laughs> we'll play it again when we finish, then, Matt. Yeah. But yeah, that that is a really striking scene. I can't yeah. believe you missed that. Yeah, yeah, uh, really. No. Oh, right. Gosh. So the mother, well, the whole family is, you know, presumably upset and distraught at this, but no one more so than Catherine, the mother, who is in inconsolable grief. Uh, for, I mean, it's hard to tell on the time frame on this, but I think it's all fairly close in, in time. And the family believe that the baby was snatched by a wolf. Eh? Thomason, I, on the other hand, isn't entirely convinced by this because obviously she only had her eyes closed for a moment. If there'd been a wolf, she would have noticed it. Then we cut to the father and son getting up early one morning and sneaking out of the house into the woods because the father wants to go out and, you know, make life better and try and get some, uh, hunt some uh, hare or deer or something, you know, bring back some meat for the table. Well, it's, it's not just that they want meat for the table. We've, we've already got our first indication at this stage that things are going wrong on the farm because just before this, we get a scene where we see some of the corn rotting on the cob, uh, flecked with black-looking pustulant. And, and you know, my, my immediate reaction was there was something like ergot, which I'll come to later when we, we discuss uh, the various things going on in the film. Yeah, certainly they're, they're maize or sweet corn or corn on the cob as various names that they're, that they're growing is rotting on the, on the um, plants and the harvest is not going well. And it's his first year, so he wouldn't have like loads of it. He'd be hoping to grow some to, to eat and some to save for seed corn. But yeah, this then becomes a very real threat to them that without... You, bringing back uh, animals from hunting they're actually facing potentially starvation over long time over a long period of time the father and son in the woods they come to the place where they've set a trap and the father confesses to the son doesn't he that he traded to get these traps with some indians i think uh and he traded the mother's silver cup. This becomes very significant later. I mean, to be fair, in his defence, not you know, not defending the lying part and the covering up part, but if they are facing starvation, that's a pretty good trade to make. Hmm. Again, one, I, missed, I missed this bit as well because I remember the bit about the cup coming up later, but I don't remember him saying that initially what he did with it. Ah, right. <laughs> this may be why you didn't like the film, Matt. You weren't fucking watching it. <laughs> I'm having to feel like I have matchsticks propping open my eyes at the time. <laughs> Is that because you had matchsticks propping open your eyes? It was fairly late night when we watched it. But I think one of the things that really hits the viewer in this scene is the dialogue between the father and the son and how their religion plays so strongly in their lives. The son is asking, what about baby Samuel that's gone missing? Is he in hell? Well remembered, Carly, very well. And cancer don't tell me what thy corrupt nature is. 
My corrupt nature is empty of grace, bent unto sin, only unto sin, and that continually. Yeah, and I mean, this is where it starts coming out that they are fairly hardcore Calvinists. And we'll talk a little bit later about what that means. But this goes a long way to explaining not only the strictness of their their lifestyle, but also perhaps the, 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 the sense of oppression and doom and paranoia that surrounds it. And then, just when they've gone around, you know, looked at the traps and haven't found anything, Caleb spots a hare in the woods. And this is a fairly sinister-looking creature. This is the first time we see it. It's a, a large hare, and it's just sitting there staring at them intently, not moving, not trying to run away. I don't know how you train a hare to act, but you couldn't have done a better job. Yeah. It looks kind of sinister and menacing, foreboding, evil. I don't know. I, I thought <laughs> it was cute and fluffy, personally. I Did you? It, yeah. Really? Oh, no, I wouldn't have thought a hare could look frightening, but this one did. So he takes up the musket, which is a, a beautiful long-barrelled musket, and um, puts the, the, the smouldering rope in it to fire it, and it backfires in the father's face, uh, and the, the hair shoots off, and uh, they, they return home empty-handed. And Catherine is waiting for them when they get back, and she is not happy about the whole thing, because with the baby having gone uh, under mysterious circumstances, she doesn't want her children being at risk, and of course, you know, William has taken Caleb out into the woods, you know, which is just where Caleb disappeared, or beyond where Caleb disappeared. Sorry, where Samuel disappeared. This seems to be a great place of fear to her the woods seem to represent the kind of evil of the world to her mm. and she's she's frightened of any of her family going in and the son caleb now lies that he thought he'd seen an apple tree in the woods and they were going to look for apples a curious lie but there we have it while all this is going on william is trying to get the goats back in the pen and he slips over in the process and lands in a pile of animal dung he really does land himself in the shit. <laughs> got a good, a good image for later on, really. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So it's a metaphor for his role in the rest of the film. And uh, so he obviously needs his clothes cleaned. He gets undressed there, passes them over to Thomason to take down to the river and wash. And Caleb goes along to join her uh, and pick up some water. So we've got the older daughter here, the teenage daughter, and the you know, the twelve-year-old son Caleb down by the river and she's washing the clothes and he's maybe getting water or something and we get this very uncomfortable scene of his kind of awakening sexuality of him looking at his sister and down her top and things like that well and i guess combining this with all this consciousness of sin and so on there's a we can see there's a big conflict going on in his head yeah it's beginning to feel like a dogs in the vineyard town isn't it oh very much so yeah <laughs> In fact, yes, everything just does escalate from one scene to the next. Oh, yes. Poor Dad is definitely the town leader, <laughs> the town <laughs> steward. <laughs> but anyway, yes, they, they're washing the... Or at least Thomason is washing her father's clothes at the river. Caleb's gathering water. They talk for a little bit, um, and they're on the verge of going into a tickle fight, which, you know, under the, the, the lecturer's circumstances seems even more wrong, <laughs> um, when Mercy, the, the, the female twin, turns up. And these twins, it has to be said, are quite sinister. They are. They're quite jolly, but in a kind of weird kind of way. The girl is much more vocal than the boy. The boy, I, after looking back, I, I would question whether the boy actually had any lines at all. But he did. He did have a few things to say. The yeah. girl is quite vocal. And she 
mocks uh, her older sister Thomasin for being a witch and accuses her of being a witch and having sided with the devil. And of being responsible for Samuel's disappearance. And obviously Thomasin, the older daughter here, she's she kind of cracks. She's had enough. So she just turns on her younger sister and says, yes, it was me. I signed the devil's book and I'm going to put a curse on you. And she kind of gets her and wrestles her to the ground and basically scares the hell out of her younger sister. Yeah, that that was a great scene, I must admit. That Just the sheer kind of menace that she puts the kind of the fear of her into the poor little kid yeah i and i think it's worth stopping at this stage and just mentioning how good all the child actors in this are i mentioned the 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 woman playing thomason is actually in her 20s i think but the you know the boy playing caleb and particularly the twins dear god the performances they get out of um you know those twins They're, they're young children but you know they're delivering lines in complex archaic english they're you know using fairly heavy you know old-fashioned yorkshire accents which i i don't know maybe they're proper accents but the deliveries of them are are fast they're weighty uh and they're powerful i think so i totally agree yeah yeah, yeah flawless that is one thing i do remember um remember saying when we first discussed this that yeah, most most of it doesn't feel like archaic English. It just feels like you've gone to Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listeners. I've got a lot of relatives up that way. Seriously, it sounds oh, like listening wasn't... to a lot of them. Okay, fair enough. All right. But and, and the old adage: never work with animals or children. Uh, My God. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, actually, I, I was watching an interview with Robert Eggers the other day, and uh, one of the questions that came up was exactly that. You know, the, you know, the old adage is, don't work with children and animals. Well, how did you find it on this film? And he said, the children were fine. The animals, on the other hand, few problems there. I can Appar- well imagine. Apparently, they wanted to have a lot more scenes with Black Philip, um, who we'll explain in a moment, the, the goat. Uh, the goat that they got to play Black Philip was apparently very, very difficult to train. And some of that viciousness wasn't just, you know, him being uh, instructed or trained. But he had nothing but good things to say about the children. Yeah, it was, ju- it was just the animals. Well, we just mentioned Black Phillip, and this leads me to, again, one of my favourite moments in the film, which is the the twins running around in the farmyard singing their songs about Black Phillip. This is just glorious. The, the songs about Black Phillip are just wonderful, and their sense of overbounding joy as they chase around this massive black goat around the shed holding hands and singing i don't know just uh just great it's kind of funny but at the same time deeply creepy yeah it, it just misses the ear ear shabnigarath quote it really does yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we move on to that night after dinner after a fairly meager dinner where there's a a bit of a discussion about uh what's happened with the the silver wine cup um, again, Catherine starts, I, I think, assuming that Thomason has stolen that at some stage or accusing Thomason. And so this is, you know, put Thomason further on the outs with her mother because, you know, apparently losing a baby is bad enough, but stealing a wine cup, that's just beyond the pale. Yeah, to the mother, I think all the evils of the world and all of everything goes wrong kind of gets put on her eldest daughter's shoulders. But we already know that this isn't the case. But the father is just looking nervous here and not owning up. And the son is like, looking down at his plate, thinking, yeah, you did it, but you're not saying. And on the back of all this, we have a scene after that with Catherine and William in bed. Uh, First of all, checking to see whether the children are asleep and the children all pretend to be asleep, but obviously they're not, so they can overhear this. 
When Catherine and William had this discussion about basically sending Thomason away, the real purpose of it is supposedly that um, they need the money, so sending her out into service in another family is a way of getting an income. But really, the subtext there is Catherine just wanting this girl out of her house. So Caleb gets up early one morning and decides that he's going to take the horse into the woods and Thomasin discovers him and they go into the woods together again you know hoping to find some food for the table or, or some such uh thing to bring back and then that bloody hare turns up again because they th- this time they haven't just taken the horse they've taken the dog as well yes and the dog sees the hare and that's it bang he's off like a yeah. shot and we have chaos then the two children get separated and there's there's some confusion as quite what happens there yeah, there's that really weird scene with Caleb crawling through what may be a felled tree or some underbrush. And, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like watching someone crawling through barbed wire. It's actually quite a horrifying thing to watch. Yeah, very dense, almost hedge-like. Mm. And he comes, comes upon the, the gored body of the dog, which has been eviscerated and bloody and gory. And he's somewhat traumatised by that, and he kind of heads deeper into the forest. And then we see... What almost looks like a, a hobbit hole, really. This little, uh, this little shack with smoke coming out of it, deep within the woods, and we know that this is the witch's home, made of gingerbread. And he approaches, and as he approaches, this younger woman now, I mean, a mature woman, but a young woman, comes to the door in a, you know, in an attractive, low-cut dress. Caleb is just totally transfixed by her and walks up to her, and as they meet, she kisses him on the lips. But then she reaches up during the kiss and you know, clutches the back of his head. And you can see her hand is old and wizened. You see, now, this is one thing that I found with that scene, that it is incredibly dark. I mean, it puts the sort of lighting effects in Dune to a whole new level. Uh, to say that, that was like lit by floodlights. It is very hard to see on exactly what's happening on the screen when I watched it. Really? Yeah, I'd get your TV chair because it was crystal clear on mine. There must be a difference between the DVD I had and what the maybe different releases, but it was almost pitch black, just black on black, hardly being able to see anything. I swore it was someone else's hand that reached round, not her hand. I think that was that was a jump scare there, which yeah. we don't get many of in this film. No, I, in fact, I'd, I'd even argue that that was a jump scare because it, or at least a couple of things that that define modern jump scares, are uh, you get that sting of music that is you know, is meant to accompany uh, the, the the visual, and that it all happens very fast. And with this, I mean, there is the reveal of it. The hand comes round, but it's not like it's suddenly bang in frame. It just moves up at a normal pace around the back of his head, and the music does crescendo slightly, but it's not that sting that you get in in a lot of modern horror films. So I, I, I'd I'd call it a you know a certain certainly a heightened moment, but it doesn't have the characteristics of what I call a jump scare. Yeah, I, I can I can see that. Fair enough. But, but it but did make me jump and mm. scare me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you want to be pedantic like that. <laughs> but it reminded me of the bit in The Shining where Jack goes into the room, whatever it is, and there's that attractive woman that comes out of the bath and he embraces her. Uh, and then, you know, it cuts to this kind of decaying corpse that he's hugging. Mm. Yeah. Thomason, while all this is going on, is wandering around in the woods lost. But her father comes out, finds her, rescues her, takes her back home. So they've lost the dog, the, the son, Caleb, yeah. and the horse. Yeah. And the gun as well, because Caleb had the gun. 
the family was already in a bad way. Now they've lost most of their valuable resources. And again, it's the older daughter who seems to be there at the scene and the blame is piled upon her once more. But in this case, Caleb actually does return. That night in in the rain and the cold, uh, Caleb turns up babbling naked uh, at the farm. He's pale, he's obviously deeply ill, he's been terrified by something. But uh, the family take him into the house and, and put him into a bed, into you know, what then becomes his deathbed. And they talk about taking him to the to the town tomorrow uh, to see a doctor. But before any of that can happen, they're praying over his body and singing hymns and so on. And he comes, he, he awakens for a short time. Yeah, there's that really weird bit where they talk about how his jaw is clenched. And, you know, immediately, you know, my, my first reaction thinking that is, you know, OK, he's got tetanus. They manage to force his mouth open, and this apple covered in blood comes out and falls on the ground. He found his apple tree. Yeah. Apparently he did. He then talks about seeing the, the glory of God and being kind of lifted up to heaven and so on, well, in quite sort of uh, poetic terms. Well, it's not even just in poetic. This is really weird, because there, there almost seems to be an erotic subtext to the whole thing when he's talking about his love for Christ. It, it isn't just a sort of divine love, a holy love. There, there really seems to be an erotic love at work there as well. Mm. Which is something also that Catherine, the mother, in a scene just coming up, she also talks about her almost erotic love for Christ and a dream she had of being with Jesus. Mm. And, I mean, she doesn't say explicitly, but I think, you know, it's quite an erotic dream for her and how she felt that that, that love for him. The boy, Caleb, he comes out with all this wonderful stuff and the family are just looking in shock at him. They're all gathered around his deathbed. Now, the twins at this point, literally hysterical, they fall to the ground. Oh, well, actually, no, there, there was a, something a bit before that. Oh, there was? Yeah, which is when the family's playing, praying around, the, the twins don't pray. In fact, when they're challenged about this by the rest of the family, oh, yeah, they, can't they say, the they, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we can't remember our And prayers. it's the Lord's Prayer. They yeah. can't remember the words. Yes. Neither of them. It's like this twin telepathy there, this twin sympathy. And they say that, I think they accuse the older sister of kind of having bewitched them and, and they can't remember the words of the Lord's Prayer. Yes. But then when Caleb dies, they kind of fall into a kind of um, hysterical paralysis on the yeah. floor, unable to move or speak. Yeah, they, there's a scene a, you know, a little bit later with the two of them lying in bed just panting like dogs, which is really quite unsettling. Very much so. Pretty much describes the whole mood for the film, really, isn't it? Just unsettling. Mm. But, of course, this new accusation of witchcraft then stirs everything up again. You know, Thomason is, you know, she, the, these accusations, you know, have hit her over and over again and her mother's suspicion is there. And, you know, Catherine, I think at this stage, is really beginning to believe that her daughter could be a witch. It, it does turn very crucible-like at this time. Mm. So fingers being pointed at one another, there's lots of hysteria, there's lots of worry, tension, and it all really starts to just kick off. Well, the yep. father takes Thomason outside... And they have this confrontation. I mean, tomorrow they're going to be going back to town. I think that's his intention. Yes. They're going to give up, go back to town, and, and try and make a peace with what they refer to. They don't call it the town. They call it the plantation. Yes. He just begs her to confess, to confess that she is actually a witch and that it was her. It's almost like that would actually console him. But she refuses to do that. She she holds on to the fact that she's not guilty for all of this. Well, and, and she and she turns it back on the twins again, talking about how they've been conversing with Black Philip. 
and she turns it on her father. Not that he's guilty of witchcraft, but how he's been useless to everything, how he's failed to provide food for their table, how his crops have failed, how he's failed to keep the family together, and, how he's yeah. failed in, in all respects, and all that he can do is chop wood. I, I was just yeah. about to say, at least he can chop wood and make a really big pile of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we get this throughout the film. I mean, we haven't mentioned this as it comes up. We get repeated scenes where basically William, every time something goes wrong, goes out to the one thing that he can control, which is um, the, the chopping block. And he goes out there with his axe and he just chops wood and chops wood and chops wood and builds up this huge wood pile by the side of the house. And and this is his little bit of control in a chaotic world. And so he puts the children, the twins and the daughter, into the goat shed. Yep. And boards them in there. Nails them shut. But, I mean, this is supposedly for their own protection, I mean, the twins have come back to consciousness now when he threatened to chop their heads off with a hatchet. <laughs> they kind of start screaming and it's evident that, you know, they were putting it on yeah. or they come out of it at least. So now the three children are in this dark goat shed. And we've seen the goat shed numerous times. It's quite significant. A number of times have the goats been bedded down for night and Thomasin would go out and, and tend to them. But this night, I mean, we get a bit of foreshadowing in that they're sitting there in the dark and then there is a noise on the roof you know it sounds like you know something large landing there and moving across the roof and removing some of the shingles from the roof to be able to get in yes and then a moment later we see this shape over by one of the goats and this sort of slurping noise and you know as the lighting changes and the camera changes slightly you can see that it's this naked old woman there hunched over basically sucking the blood out of one of the goats flora flora back to the main house where the mother and father are in bed and the mother awakens doesn't she and gets out of bed yes the bed which is curtained and there before her over on the shelf is the silver cup returned and she sees it and then she turns her head and to the right of it there is her son caleb alive once more sat in the chair holding in the red cloth the baby samuel All that was lost is now restored. And then we see her sat in the chair, holding the baby. Suckling it. Oh, yes, yes, I remember this bit. And then we see perhaps what's really there, and her just with her arms empty and her breast exposed and this big black crow before her, pecking at her breast. There's a bit more that I remember in that because there's mention of the book that comes in there would you oh, like yes. to sign uh, would you, uh, this voice almost as if it's behind the camera whispering would you um will you will you sign your name in my book yes the following morning we see first of all catherine waking oh well, we see catherine and william waking up william clambers over catherine but catherine is lying there and you can see that there is actually blood soaked through the chest of her shift yeah not a lot but where her nipple would be there's yeah. there's a, a some blood yeah. he's pretty much oblivious to this as far as i'm aware. yeah i don't think he sees side. that he goes outside 
and find you know, to chaos. look at the, the goat shed and we just see his face like what the hell yeah because there are you know the bodies of of you know, goats that have been eviscerated and torn asunder lying there dead on the ground there is no sign of the twins but there is thomason lying unconscious on the ground at that point i think yes and then out of the blue bam goat black philip <laughs> black philip rams the father in the stomach with his massive horns and gores him and yeah, it's it's pretty clear he's a goner, and he well, staggers back. Well, uh, yeah, there, there is that weird bit where he reaches over, picks up a hatchet, and you know, is getting ready to defend himself. And then, I mean, we 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 sort of mentioned him briefly, sort of the the Calvinist idea of predestination and fatalism and so on. And it's almost like at this stage he suddenly decides to accept his fate because he's holding the hatchet, ready to defend himself. Looks at Black Philip, and then just drops the hatchet and you know lets the inevitable happen. I remember that the the goat just bounds into him and thrusts him back into the woodpile that he's been building up over the whole film. Yeah, (laughs) and the woodpile collapses on him, crushing him. So it's like the 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 symbolism of that is just perfect. The one thing in the whole uh, in the whole situation he thought he could control, the one thing that was his ends up being his destruction. I mean, it's almost Shakespearean. It's great. (laughs) So now we're down to two characters: Thomasin, the older daughter. And the mother who comes out of the house and is just mental now. She just like runs and grabs the daughter and accusing her of witchcraft. Her husband's dead, her twins are missing, her son's dead, her baby's disappeared. And all there is is this older daughter who is clearly responsible for it all in her eyes. And they set to. Yeah, Catherine starts strangling her daughter and... You know, Thomason tries to defend herself, you know, first of all, or tries to talk her mother down. Makes a luck roll, (laughs) and there's a a knife just at hand's reach. Yeah, when all else has failed and the fact, you know, she's got nothing else to do but strike her mother, because otherwise her mother is just going to strangle her to death. Undoubtedly. she, She reaches out for this blade and just starts stabbing her mother in the head with this blade. Yeah, with a quite sickening thud, thud, thud every impact. So Thomas Sin is now alone at the family homestead with Black Philip. I was going to say, not quite alone. Not yeah. alone. <laughs> she, she goes into the house. The first thing she does is undo those tight bonding laces down the front of her dress, takes her dress off so she's just got her shift on. And it's kind of, dis- well, I don't know what her emotion is there, but... After a while, she goes to talk to Black Philip. This doesn't seem to work at first. I mean, she, you know, she's there in this goat shed in the dark, surrounded by the ruins of her farm and the dead family, just talking to this goat. And you know, it's it's an almost tragic, you know, almost blackly comic moment. But that passes pretty quickly when this this sort of gentle, whispering man's voice answers her and invites her to remove her shift. It's very dark now, and she sat before a table. We see behind her, it's like, is there somebody there? Yeah, and we you see can just, a man with you can just the, see the shape of a man moving around. Leather boots and I think yeah. spurs, maybe, and it's kind of in a, in a coat, and he's moving just behind her. We can barely make him out. Yeah, he's, he's almost a shadow. You certainly never see his face, but you hear his voice. And then he bids her to, do you see a book? Sign the book. And she says, I can't write my name. And he says, I will guide your hand. I cannot write my name. I will guide thy hand. 
And now, hang on, I know we've got at least one contract lawyer who listens to this show. <laughs> so, I mean, if, is this legally binding? I mean, if the devil comes to you, gets you to sign his book, and he has to guide your hand to make the signature, does that mean, from a legal point of view, are you damned? Kind of halfway. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, personally, I think that that's got to be against the letter of the law at the very least. You know, this, this is convincing me more and more that I need to definitely get a new TV because I don't remember seeing a guy. I just remember it being black and I got the impression that it was the, the voice was coming from behind the camera again. It kind of does come from behind the camera, behind our heads. But there is a figure there. It's quite hard to make out, which is why I was saying it's kind of in the shadows. You're kind of like, oh, is there somebody there or not? It was just and all then, shadow on my is, screen. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think you need to have a look at your TV then, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. But there is some great dialogue there where, you know, he's tempting her and saying, you know, dost thou like the taste of butter? And that wonderful line, wouldst thou live deliciously? Mm-hmm. That, that is just, for me, the perfect summation of temptation. Wouldst Would- thou live deliciously? The one for me was, uh, would you like to see the world? Yes. Yeah. Which, you know, for a girl who's been on an isolated farm in, in Massachusetts for the last year or whatever, you know, and that's got to be you know, the biggest temptation of them all. Oh, God, has it ever? Because she knows if she goes back to the plantation, what, what will there be for her? Just a life of servitude, I would oh, think. Or oh, being tried as a witch and, and hanged. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So then we see it's evening and she's walking naked back from the house towards those brooding woods and black philip the goat is walking along behind her and we could easily fade to black here and that would be the end of the film and that's kind of what i expected i think that's Mm. what most films would have done here but that's not where it ends no they head off and they find a clearing in the wood where there's a bonfire burning and there are naked women there writhing around in ecstasy in ritual chanting an enochian and there's about a dozen of them right yeah yeah they're around the bonfire and as you know as thomasin goes in and joins them they start to rise up in the air the last shot is thomasin there amongst their numbers rising up as well this look of ecstasy on her face as she has finally you know become what she was always meant to be and then we go to black and a fantastic piece of period you know music plays as the credits roll. What do we make of The Witch? If we start off with the production of it, it's outstanding. The one of the things that is probably going to strike most viewers when they first watch it is the dialogue. Mm. In the, it uses this 17th century period dialogue. And by the end of the film, I'd almost, as with when I watch a film in subtitles, the next day I almost forget that it had that because my ear gets attuned to it and I forget that it's there. But when I watched it again last night, when I first started hearing the dialogue, it really uh, struck me. And I, it's, not, it's not that it's too difficult to understand, but it was a little bit like challenging at first. And then, and then I kind of, oh, yeah, no, no, it's fine. I kind of got into the flow of it again. Yeah, it's to give, if you haven't seen the film, to give you some idea of what we're talking about, the film is set in 1630, so it's, it's almost contemporary. I mean, it's a few years after or a couple of decades after Shakespeare. 
Shakespeare's work is very different, though, in that you know there's lots of wordplay and uh, right. poetry and so on. And yes, I mean, so I mean, this isn't iambic pentameter or anything. This is much more naturalistic dialogue. But in terms of the syntax and in terms of the words, yeah, it, it is of that era. Yeah, which admittedly, it's not that far removed. I know when I first heard that it was, say, quite an archaic English, that immediately struck me as this might be a bit of a barrier to entry to some. But I actually wouldn't really say that. It was very easy to follow. There are maybe a couple of moments, like with Caleb and the father out in the woods, where they start to speak rather quickly, that it becomes hard to follow. But other than that, I don't think anyone should have any worries about being able to follow any of the language in the film. It is very, very easy to follow. Well, I do wonder sometimes about the accents they used. I was trying to work out where this comes in terms of the great vowel shift, because they use modern pronunciations for everything. And I think, I mean, at 1630, if I remember correctly, that's sort of at the very end of it. So perhaps the fact that they're using vowel sounds that are comprehensible to us isn't completely unrealistic. But certainly, I mean, if you go back to Shakespeare's day, the pronunciation of English was very, very different. And this is why, if you go back and read a lot of Shakespeare's work, you find all sorts of rhymes in there, which in modern English just do not rhyme because the vowel sounds that he used were very different from what we use today. Mm. I wonder also how it plays with non-British audiences who are even less accustomed to those accents such as Yorkshire accents and so on. You know, if, if we found it even slightly challenging, that may well be more so abroad. Yeah, yeah, I would have thought if English is your second language, you might have to use uh, subtitles for at least part of this. Actually, I'd be interested to watch it again with subtitles because there, yeah. there are quite a few words I think I didn't quite pick up on. Yeah, particularly with the young kids where they're speaking very quickly and so on. Yeah. I mean, this is one thing we were talking about before when, when they were singing Black Philip's song. So when you've got the two twins running around the farmyard singing to Black Philip, I mean, it's a great sing-song nursery rhyme. But, you know, listening to that and, and actually understanding what they're saying is quite tricky. So we ended up having to find a copy online that actually had the transcript to the words to, to know what, what the words of the whole thing were. But that's by no means essential to your appreciation of the film. No. Um, it's, it's a child's nursery rhyme. The fact they're singing Black Philip is just great. Another thing that is very striking with the film is the, the look of the film. And I think that's very much down to the, the colour palette, if you like. There's, yeah. It's very subdued. It's, it's not far off black and white, but it's definitely not black and white. It's, there's some reds and so on in it which kind of pick out certain elements. And grey. Yeah. Lots of grey. <laughs> Lots of grey. But it's interesting that, you know, I watched it again over the weekend uh, before recording to refresh my memory because I saw it some time back. And I actually remembered it as being in black and white. Huh. It's a combination of the very limited colour palette and the fact that a lot of it, certainly all the internal stuff, is shot in, you know, candlelight, for example. So, you know, it's very, very stark black and white colours. The director does say they'd like to have shot it on film, but that was beyond their budget and they shot it in digital. But yes, they, they use candlelight or natural light. And I think they said no makeup. So the, I guess the only makeup really is applying dirt and blood. Other than that, you were seeing, you know, the actors kind of laid bare, really, quite literally in some cases. This is probably the first non-British entry I can think of into what's commonly referred to as the folk horror genre, which is this very rural, often period uh, style of horror, um, you know, to do with isolation, to do with uh, the rural life. And 
the, the, the traditional horrors that lurk in our midst. And, you know, classic examples of that would be things like The Wicker Man, Blood on Satan's Claw, uh, Field in England, possibly even Witchfinder General. Mm-hmm. The ones that are brought to mind for me, well, typically, and I'm not on about the film of this title, but of the, if you like, genre of film of The Cabin in the Woods. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it is, it is a Cabin in the Woods film, isn't it? You know, they, yeah. it, it's, it's all about them going off. They're not quite in the woods, but they're on the edge of the woods. They're isolated bad things happen you know they come to a bad end but there's no merman <laughs> no merman no and, and yeah can you think of a film that wouldn't be improved by the addition of a merman <laughs> but a couple of other films that also put me in mind of a little bit of blair witch kind of the, the horror in the mm. woods but more so actually lars von trier's antichrist oh god yes yeah um, in terms of the atmosphere and the pacing and and the and weirdness that, that, and that oppressive sense of dread yeah and the animals yeah yes have you seen antichrist matt no no i've seen reviews for it but i've not said not actually yeah seen and it. you wouldn't be surprised to hear black philip going chaos reigns yeah <laughs> absolutely and that that hair is just like you know something out of antichrist i yeah. thought so, yeah. Though this isn't quite as transgressive a film as Antichrist. No, no, no by no means. Yeah, there's, there's Few no films ge- there, are, to be honest. There, there's no genital mutilation in this for no. a start. Now, for me, one of the things that I really liked about this film was the fact that the, the non-supernatural... No, actually, I'll, I'll rephrase that. The apparently mundane elements, because it does seem like there are probably supernatural causes for them, but the family struggled for survival against the failure of their crops, against uh, their chickens laying inedible eggs with with fertilised embryos in them, against them milking the goats and the goats producing blood instead of milk. But this, uh, you know, their inability to actually capture any um, game out in the woods. This is... This is a real struggle for survival. This is a family in an isolated area against the elements, uh, faced with you know, a, a choice of going back to a community that's rejected them or starving. And I, I don't know, I found that in its own way probably as horrifying, if not more horrifying, than the supernatural elements of it. Yeah, I mean, that is a very domestic problem, really. And, and also with their religion, I mean, God is... Aren't they supposed to provide for his uh, people who go off into the wilderness? I mean, they make one reference at one point of uh, Jesus going off into the wilderness and being tested, and that's pretty much what they're doing. But is this a battle more against um, against nature or more against the corrupting factor of witchcraft? And yeah, so? I, mm. th- that's why I corrected myself on that because you know all of these things that happen, you know, like the uh, the the goat producing blood instead of milk, uh, like the crops rotting on the uh, the stalk, I mean, these are all things that come straight out of tales of witchcraft from the you know the thirteenth century onwards. Mm. I'd like to say a bit more about the dad as well. Yes, you know, as a dad myself, I feel I've got to stick up for this guy. <laughs> he has a pretty tough time of it, doesn't he? I mean, he, he kind of messes things up by lying about the silver cup and by taking the family off into the woods, you know, hunting and stuff like that. But he's trying to do his best. Yeah. And when the girl rails against him and sort of says, oh, you know, you messed up the crops and you messed up this and you messed up that. I'm thinking, hold on, he built that house. 
Nobody else. Well, you know, I guess everybody helped, but I imagine he's like the main guy building that frigging house. And you, it's not just like a little shack. That's quite a substantial dwelling he's built there. You, you know, the fact that we never saw the house being built, but you've made that assumption, probably says quite a lot about you, Paul. Well, then who else is going to build it? He's the, he would have built the house, uh, right? Right, okay. Yes. And... You know, with his own, you know, sweat of his brow, he built that house and he gets no thanks for it, no gratitude. What is going on there? Do you have a wood pile outside, Paul? I used to have, but now we don't have a wood fire here. But I do kind of miss chopping the wood. I was good at that. Damn it. <laughs> One thing I knew I could do was chop wood. Now they've taken that away from me. But the whole family dynamic was fantastic in this. I mean, the, you know, that... that Really creepy sexual tension between uh, Caleb and Thomason. I mean, it only comes up a few times, but I, I mean, fundamentally, you know, th- this whole film is shot through with stories about sin and elements of sin and the way the sins come back to haunt people. You know, the fact that Caleb, who we've seen, is you know, absolutely terrified of going to hell, of his family members going to hell, you know, knows his scripture inside out when his father quizzes him on on their beliefs. When they're going through the woods, he gets everything absolutely perfect. You know, um, Thomason, you know, we see at the early part of the film, is is praying fervently for forgiveness over all these incredibly minor sins, as if they are the worst things in the world. And, you know, it's the way, as the film goes on, the, you know, these, these, you know, perhaps the echoes of these little sins maybe create the cracks whereby the witchcraft comes in and destroys them. You know, the, 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 their spiritual armour perhaps is, is weakened by all this. If anything, then, it's quite, um, I'd say almost an irony, but almost a, um, a bigger win for the, um, for the witches in the film, then, to take Tom, uh, Thomason as one of their own, because she starts off as being the one that's the most pure. That the others have, like, for instance, Caleb had his um, has his awakening sexuality. You've got the uh, the failings of the father. You've got the mother who's so starting to crack already. The kids are already conversing with the, um, the devil in yeah. the form of the goat. That she's the one that's the in in essence the purest throughout the whole film, and that she's the one that ultimately becomes corrupted. I mean, the, the the Calvinist aspect of this really appealed to me. I must admit, I don't really know too much about Calvinism. Do we still have Calvinists now? Is that still a, a I, going thing? I yeah, I, I don't believe, know much about it. I, I, I believe that there's. Yeah, you know, um, I was doing some research on the Congregational Church recently for a different project, and I mean, certainly that's got Calvinist roots. But I don't think it's kind of hardcore Calvinist in the way that the early Puritans were. I, I did some research on Calvinism for one of the one of the bigger projects we're working on, but. I remember it being a very confusing subject that mm. is very, very deep. And even then, there are multiple, what you could almost consider factions within that, whether you've oh, got God, new yeah. light, old yes. light, and so on, about the uh, that's kind of emerging a little after this time, I think. That's more seventeen mid-1700s rather than the 1600s when this is set. Oh, yeah, but, but even at this time, talking about Calvinism as a monolithic entity, I mean, we see in that opening scene of the film the schism there over interpretations of their religion, mm-hmm. you know, driving a few people away from the community. So, you know, talking about Calvinism as, as you know, this, this single entity is, you know, a bit reductive. Splitters. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, you know, I don't know how much it informed the film, but they, the... the aspect of Calvinism that always intrigues me and, you know, I find fairly rich 
uh, fodder for fear is this whole idea that of predestination. There's the idea that only certain people are saved. You can try to work towards salvation through, you know, through faith and through good deeds and good works. But ultimately, even before you're born, God has decided whether or not you're going to be saved. So if God has decided that you're going to hell, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, you're damned. Yeah, it's all part of his plan, screw anything else that you try. That's a bit crap then, because if you decide, oh, your life's going bad, and, oh, obviously, you know, God decided that I was bound for hell anyway, well, screw it. There's nothing I can do to, you know, enter heaven, then I'll just do whatever I want, surely. And that is pretty much what happens to Thomason at the end. Yeah. Because, I mean, these people really believe in witchcraft, and it's not like something that might happen. It's, you know, it's at your doorstep all the time. And enough that they know about a hell of a lot of it. Because Thomasin re- oh, yeah. recites about the fact that the black book and so on, that she signs her name in it, that she can do X, Y, and Z. She has a lot of knowledge about this stuff. Oh, very much so. <laughs> but, I mean, this was very much part of the culture. I, fear about witches has started out in the late 13th century, really. I, it was all kindled by the, the publication of the Malleus Maleficorum, the Hammer of the Witches, uh, in Germany in 1840, sorry, in 1486. Um, and, you know, from there, there have been sort of ebbs and flows in witch paranoia across Europe. And I, by the, the stage that this is happening, you know, a lot of it has subsided. I, there, there was a bit of it in, in England and, and Scotland in the 17th century, particularly under King James, who believed very much in witches. And, well, he published demono- uh, demonology, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. Um, but, yeah, really the last hurrah of, of witch paranoia came around in Salem at the end of the century. So, I mean, this is a fairly late part of the whole thing. So the whole, I suppose, culture and set of folklore beliefs about witches at this stage have become fairly bedded in and part of the culture and common knowledge. Of course, as well, when we talk about witchcraft in this, we are talking about this very old-fashioned concept of witchcraft. And, you know, you know obviously witchcraft has come to mean something very different in the modern day with the, the, revi- you know, the neo-pagan revival. Uh, but, yeah, yeah there, there, there is... There is no element of that in this film. You know, this this is not, you know, this is not Wiccans. This is not neo pagans. This is not the reinvention of witchcraft. This is old know, the, school. The, yeah, this <laughs> the, the, this is you know all the nightmares you were told about in fairy tales and the Malleus Maleficorum. Well, the subtitle for this film, The Witch, is a New England folk tale. Mm. And watching it this time, the second time, I was very struck by how much of a fairy tale it is. Yes, you know, to, to the point where the boy. He comes back and there's an apple in his mouth, you know, inexplicably. Things happen that would fit in a fairy tale. They're dark. They're, I mean, with, with all the dark kind of um, undercurrents of a fairy tale as well. Talking goats. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, well, I mean, and the, you know, the, the, the witch's shack out in the woods is like something out of the Brothers Grimm. Yeah, like I said, made of gingerbread. Yes. And when we see that witch come out and, and the witch going through the woods, she's you know, dressed very much like Red Riding Hood with the red cowl over her head. They have the whole untamed wilderness of Massachusetts <laughs> and they pick that one fucking wood. That's, that's just failing the party luck roll straight off the bat, really, isn't it? Not really, because wherever they went, the GM would have screwed them over. Yeah. Um, and there are witches everywhere. Every, yeah, there every, are every, everywhere. Yeah. In your wardrobe, under your bed. They're everywhere, Matt. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. they kind of did believe that, right? I mean, yeah. they, you know, <laughs> demons and witches were literally everywhere. So one of the things that really distracted me when I was watching the film the first time through was the father 
the actor who plays the father. I saw him on screen. More, well, not not so much seeing him, but hearing his voice. He's got this voice that comes up from his boots. It's so deep and rich. And I, and I could just listen to him all day, I think, in this film. I yeah. just love, love listening to him. But I was like, where have I seen this guy before? And the, the, the same place as you saw the actor who played his wife. No, I don't. Oh, really? I'm not well, sure. They were, this they, were is... both on, they were both on Game of Thrones. Okay, well, I saw him before that, and this oh, okay. is where I'm thinking of him. <laughs> but the, the place that I'm thinking of him is like the, the, the total antithesis, I guess, of, of this role. And he played a kind of a bit part in The Office, and he was this really <laughs> objectionable, sexist, kind of Jack the Lad representative for the company, you know, going around selling paper. Uh, and Ricky Gervais's character thought he was kind of God's gift and, and kind of worshipped him, whereas uh, Robert Inson's character thought Ricky Gervais was a dick. But, you know, he had that, that, obviously he had the same deep voice, but that was all I could remember. And then about 20 minutes into the film, I go, oh, he was in the office. He was that guy. And then for about another 20 minutes, a half hour, it's going through my head thinking... What was his name? What was his name? What was his name? <laughs> oh, I can remember the guy. I hate name. it when that happens. Yeah. When that happens, it's sometimes quicker and easier to get your phone out, check IMDb. Oh, I and couldn't move do that. On. <laughs> so it's Chris Finch in the office, and then and then of course he was in Game of Thrones as well. Yes. I'd like to talk a little bit about how much this film wrong-footed me, because I I was really not expecting what we got from this film, because. I guess you don't really get straightforward renditions of folk tales like this. I mean, the clues in the name, a New England folk tale, uh, where you get this build-up of, oh, yeah, there's something sinister in the woods and it looks like it's going to be a witch, and at the end of it, it's a witch. You know, modern horror films tend to play around so much with ideas and forms like this that where you get this indication in the first five or six minutes there's a witch out in the wood and she's stolen the baby, you know, I kept expecting there to be, you know, that to be some kind of misdirection and there to be false accusations. Or, you know, when I saw uh, the rot on the uh, on the corn, I assumed, oh, yeah, yeah, they've all got ergot poisoning and they're all hallucinating wildly. And, um, you know, because... A, a a lot of the, a lot of the uh, accusations against witches over the years have been blamed on ergot poisoning. Um, so, I mean, the Salem witch trials, for example, you know, there, there is a theory that um, a lot of the things that people report having seen witches do there were hallucinations caused by ergot. I'm still not sure that we did that. There was a witch. <laughs> uh, I mean, it. I to me, it seems like. It could be in her head. We, I mean, the first thing when the baby disappears, the baby's on a red cloth. She looks down, the baby's not on the red cloth. Cut to the very next scene, we see the figure going through the woods, draped in a red cloth. The red cloth mm. is still there with the girl, but now we see this figure draped in the red cloth. You know, is she just imagining she's the witch and she goes into the woods and kills the baby? It's, there's, there's, there's not a great deal to say that's the case. But then we see the, the corn, as you say, Scott, and we don't just see that once. We see it a mm. number of times and they refer to it a number of times of it going bad. We don't see Thomasin, the older daughter. We don't see her and the witch at the same time. We don't see her when her brother disappears in the woods She's somewhere else. Where is she quite? You know, we know he's sexually attracted to her. And then he meets this beautiful young woman and they have sex. I don't don't think that one can find an alternative explanation that totally holds together. 
any more than the explanation that the film presents. You know, that there are actually witches that can fly actually holds together, you know, in terms of reality. So I think there's a number of different explanations, but none of them really are fully cohesive. Yeah. And the director himself said, if someone wants to go in and watch this and think it's about a real witch, that's the surface read. But if you want to go in for more, there's a lot more ways to look at it. He doesn't really explain more than that, but it, it seems like more than anything, it's about the family's belief in witchcraft yes. manifesting in the real world. I don't think we need to have more than that. I don't think we need to have a concrete explanation. I'm saying, oh my God, I'm sounding like Scott now. <laughs> um, I am surprised I'm the one saying this and not you, Scott. But I, I think we don't need a concrete explanation, but there's lots of ways to look at it. And you can look yeah. at it, and each different way you turn it looks a little bit different. I, I and I'm happy with that. I think that's good. I suppose the point I'm making is that the surface read of it is so straightforward that it's not something you see very much in horror films these days. It's rare to see a, kind of a, a threat portrayed that blatantly and that obviously without any twists or turns or revelations all the way through. You know, it starts off at the beginning appearing to be one thing, the you know, details are crew, and at the end of it is exactly what it appears to be. Yeah, I think, I guess, crucially, it's, it's exactly what they would think it is. Yes. With no uh, confusion. It is witches, and you know what? It is witches. Oh, yeah, but that's, that's one thing I was going to say about being wrong-footed. It is witches, plural, not mm. the witch, which makes me think the witch in the title is actually a reference to Thomasin. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And now, what can we steal for gaming from the witch? Personally, I want a spell book. Because <laughs> <laughs> I want flight. That's great stuff. It'll save me a fortune on playing fairs. Yeah, you, you do just... have to get babies, though, Matt. Unbaptized babies. We're working on it. <laughs> and, uh, no, I hope you're not working on it, actually, Matt. I hope you're not working on it. Somebody yeah. call social services. <laughs> and, and also, at best, you know, you'd get one free flight a year. I'll get me to Gen Con. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nothing okay. if not practical. <laughs> you, you need to set up another family in the US so you can get the return journey sorted out. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> So this setting is rich in period detail. Uh, you know, it is totally all there. If you want to run a game in the, you know, the early 1600s, I don't think you can find a better source for it than this. Certainly, if you want to play, you know, a rural game, um, this is this is steeped in it. Yeah, it has that that feeling of isolation, that feeling of oppression, just the details of the domestic life in the house. Um, you know, the meal times, the way they speak to each other, the religious focus, even just the lighting in the house. You can absorb all that, and as a player or as a GM, you could use, you could riff on that and, and produce so much atmosphere at the gaming table. And when I was in on holiday in America this summer, we went to South Dakota and we visited a homestead there. And these were places of 160 acres that were given away by the government to, you know, a family. And if you could hold it for five years and farm it and make a living there, it was yours. And this was being this particular homestead we visited, uh, which was kind of, you know, uh, made up to be like it was at the time, was uh, a small place with turf walls, you know, again, a kind of akin to a hobbit hole almost, and with um, wooden barns, not 
you know, not so very different. But this is from the early 20th century that this that this family took this place on. So, and, you know, that's really not so different to the people in The Witch. But this is 300 years later in uh, pretty much Call of Cthulhu classic period. I'm not sure if it's 1920s, maybe 1910s. Um, but, you know, so if you want to run this setting or a game like this in classic Call of Cthulhu, it's right there. You just take your, your homestead in America. And it was a fantastic reminder of how powerful rural locations, isolated rural locations, can be for horror. You know, that, that, that sense of helplessness that it engendered, that sense of the elements being against them, that every little natural mishap could presage some supernatural threat or could be an indicator of some supernatural threat is quite horrifying. And marvellous how the characters, all the characters, you know, if we imagine them as player characters, well, being given the mother or the father, great, I'm an adult, you know, I'm in charge. And then, you know, being given the children, it's like, oh, I have to sort of do as I'm told and I'm just one of the kids. No, not at all in this. And we, we see exactly that the parents are actually quite powerless. So you'd want kind of that sort of factored into the characters in their relationships, in the game mechanics, that, that the, the, there is quite an even playing field, really. It reminded me quite a lot of the pre-gens I tend to create when I'm using family units yeah. um, for, for convention games. Very much. Well, the fact this does strike, uh, I think it was even in the notes that you've written up, that you're saying that it reminds you of a lot of one of your scenarios. Hell yeah, powerless parents, dead kids, <laughs> chaos, social breakdown. Of course it's one of your bloody scenarios. <laughs> There's a lot of the difficulties that they suffer about hunger, about relationships. Maybe not so much about relationships but about the the hunger and the religion and their hardships which are really manifest in the film and we can feel a real problems for the characters in the story and the in on the screen but in a role-playing game those things are pretty hard to hit the players with you know oh you haven't got any yeah. food oh never mind i'm a bit hungry well yeah, how do you kind of impress that upon the players especially the one shot very difficult in a campaign probably a bit more easy to build up that kind of atmosphere um there's actually one game that we played that i remember this um this hit rang true with which was um probably this is where you turn and look at me in a gasp um playing a, a game of exalted where there's a one of the campaigns or one of the adventures in there is about going up to the far wastes of the north and it almost in excruciating detail describes how like food low food resources get, how you are really out in the barren wastelands that you have to make constitution rolls, etc. Blah blah blah, all the way through this kind of setting up atmosphere, and it did remind me a little bit of that. Hmm. But that's about that's one of the few instances where I can think of that being trying to put into a game, and I do remember it being when we played it, we glossed over a lot of that because it was frankly the dull lead up to getting to the big dungeon. Well, I think end. that's the danger, isn't it? It just becomes a resource management thing. You know, you tick off another you know, another yeah. day's trail rations kind of thing, yeah, like exactly. in D&D. &D. Oh, you've run out. Oh, dear, we need to get some more. But it's the, it's the effect of that deprivation that you want to try and manifest in the game, which I think is difficult. I, I wonder whether one way you could do it is sort of almost taking the unknown armies approach, where the the keeper or the GM uh, keeps hold of the, the stats, the character sheets, 
And you, you sort of say to the, the players that there will be mechanical effects that, you know, some of your characteristics will be affected by hunger um, and some of the other hardships you face. You won't know what the mechanical effects are. I'll manage that. I'll just tell you how you're, you know, how this is affecting you physically. And then I think that uncertainty, you know, you're not just looking at a number on a sheet anymore. You know, you know that somehow in a way that you can't quantify, you're less effective now. And the GM is telling you about the hunger gnawing away at your belly and, you know, the fact that you've just failed to catch that bloody hair for the, you know, the third day in the row. And, and, and those may- things perhaps make you more susceptible to delusions as well. Mm. Yes. And I think delusions is an interesting thing to touch on here, because and if we're looking at the Call of Cthulhu 7th edition idea of delusions, The Witch on one level could be a film that's absolutely full of them. If you take it as a surface reading, there's almost the temptation to say that it's a film where, or a story where the characters undergo a number of delusions or think they're undergoing a number of delusions and then realise they weren't at all and that you know, everything they thought was a delusion is actually real. Thinking about a relationship map for these characters, it'd be great to draw one up. I mean, if you're not familiar with a relationship map, this is where you buy you take well not just the player characters, but all the characters in the game, all the all the kind of key characters in your game, and draw them out on a big sheet of paper or on a on, on a computer app, and you put arrows between them for the key relationships. You know, this person is uh, you know wants to marry this person. This person wants to persecute that person for something they did, uh, and you know, everybody pretty much is an arrow to pretty much everybody. Everybody thinks everybody else is a witch. Everybody else <laughs> thinks everybody else is a sinner. She, the mum thinks, you've stolen my cup. The dad thinks, I want to keep that secret. And it's just a, a weird web of um, intrigue and suspicion among all of them, really. I mean, none of them are really... I mean, what like you said, Matt, Thomasin, the older daughter, is probably the one who is... The whose purest. slate is kind of yeah. cleanest um and in, in in terms of their beliefs more than anything the mother is kind of you know she's beset with what would you call it sort of pride or avarice over this cup that's her flaw uh, but she's also very very quick to blame everyone else for what's going on yes yeah uh, if you if you're looking at the seven deadly sins her sin is probably wrath okay especially she's Especially as she's the one that um, is first to start physically striking blows, apart from Black Phillip. Yeah. And what would their goals be? I mean, I can see one goal the son would have. <laughs> yes. The relationship I, with the sister. Fun for all the family. And maybe her too, I don't know. But I hadn't really thought of it in terms before, but you could probably... Um, you could probably break down the character motivations in this film to the seven deadly sins. I mean, the father's pride, Caleb's obviously lust, you know, the mother's wrath. I mean, it's um, the father's pride that gets them into the whole situation uh, in start because yeah. he's the one that says, no, you know, we won't follow the, the plantation laws. We, you know, we're not going to stand for this. We're going to leave and we can cope perfectly well on our own. The rest of the family might have been all right to sort of say, oh, well, actually, we'll stay. But no, the father is like, we're off. Is it a coincidence then there are seven family members? Ooh. Are there? You've so got there's... the twins. You've got the um, yes. Thomasin, Caleb, yeah. the, the baby, and then the husband and wife. Even if that is a coincidence, that's quite an interesting setup <laughs> for a game to give each person make each person kind of manifest one of the seven deadly sins. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know if that happens in this film. I mean, perhaps it does, but that 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 could be quite an interesting setup. I mean, you wouldn't want yeah. to broadcast them too explicitly, I think, but. 
as a sort of base for each of the characters, that's pretty cool. Well, I'm thinking about, you know, if you were doing something like this as a Call of Cthulhu one-shot, within the backstory elements for the character trait, maybe, you just put in one of the seven deadly sins. Mm. Another thing that, you know, occurs to me from a gaming point of view is something that I touched on when we were going through uh, what we thought of the film earlier, which is the power of doing the obvious. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, this film... As, as I keep saying, sets out in the first five or six minutes exactly what's going on. If you did that in a role-playing game, I think most players would do what I did in my first run-through of this film and sit there second-guessing it. And, you know, they would believe any theory except for the obvious one that you presented to them at the beginning. Because, obviously, you know, particularly for a one-shot, there's going to be a twist in it. You know, you're, you're doing this as misdirection and so on. And in this case, you know, the obvious is misdirection because no one's expecting it. I think it would have been easy to make this film differently, but it wouldn't have been as good. I mean, it is kind of a slow boil in the middle to some degree. But, you know, that, that early on scene is just mentioned with the witch. And you know, to, to put the horror straight up there at the outset i don't tend to do that in call of cthulhu games i tend to sort of you know have a bit of a slow boil and this kind of brooding kind of curiosity about what's going on and intrigue and so on um yeah i very rarely do that i do sometimes but yeah but i, I generally like starting the game by punching the players in the face but sometimes that can dispel the horror i think i think that's it's and sometimes it works really well i think you know either way can can work really well but but this this is a, a good lesson in how you know just how effective that can be i guess another thing that i i do sometimes in myself in games or games i'm running which you know the, this film certainly fired me up even more towards is having characters who are motivated by religious faith and i think I think it's something that's served quite badly in a lot of role-playing games. I mean, in Call of Cthulhu, generally, when you come across, you know, a clergyman or something like that, it's, you know, a front for him being Neolithotep or some cultist. Oh, do you think? Or can can (laughs) I guess. Yeah, you very rarely come across religious characters in Call of Cthulhu who are exactly what they seem. Um, But, yeah, I, I certainly... When I've done pre-gens for you know a few uh, few one shots, you know there's one I'm working on at the moment called The Way of Old Flesh, uh, which is you know about a, 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 a rector and his family, and you know the, the whole thing is about religious faith and the faith of the characters and the way it's confronted by them encountering a different kind of religious faith. I guess as fans of Lovecraft, often we're not religious ourselves. And we tend to kind of uh, cast those who are as somehow flawed or irrational and, you know, um, channels for the evil forces. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm not religious myself these days, but I used to be. So I, I've got quite a lot of sympathy for that worldview, and I find it very easy to create sympathetic religious characters. And I just think, it, yeah, as I say, it's something that's very you know poorly served. And I think religious faith and the challenging of it and the, you know, the struggle to preserve it is, is a really powerful thing in the game if the players buy into it. Dreams in the Witch House definitely has a lot to owe here. You've got the the imagery or the kind of icon of the book being signed, yes. even though it's not necessarily the Book of Azathoth, but still a demonic book nonetheless. Mm. Yeah, and I think you know that that then leads us on to how can we look at 
perhaps the witches and the witch is the basis for a mythos cult or uh, a myth, mythos antagonist. And obviously, you know, the I guess the template for this would be a character like Keziah Mason from Dreams in the Witch House, who is simultaneously a classic um, 17th century American colonial witch, but at the same time is absolutely steeped in the mythos. Yeah, I, I wouldn't feel drawn to necessarily mixing the two. Um, I mean, it's in that story, I know, but... You know, I think the whole thing with the the witches and everything, you could run that in a Call of Cthulhu game without having to necessarily, you know, saying, you know, Narthtep did it. And that that's something we put into the, the Supernatural Monsters section in the new 7th edition rules, that if you want to take the Call of Cthulhu mechanics and run, you know, a vampire story or a werewolf story or you know, a witch story, don't feel compelled to make it be part of the Cthulhu mythos. It can be... A standalone thing not all of your games have to sit in some sort of um continuous similar fictional world there are a couple of source books or collections of scenarios that work on that basis where they are horrific but non-mythos threats you've got uh, bumps in the night from pagan publishing Blood brothers one and two from chaosium there's a number of them out there and actually it kind of undermines the player's expectation they know call of cthulhu or indeed if if they know call of cthulhu they probably do so they're going to be expecting you know, mythos monsters. So actually the fact that it's just a werewolf, if you want to say just, <laughs> if you can make that cool, then that's cool. Or it's a witch. You know, witches don't get much more scary. On the other hand, you know, there is obviously, you know, within the fiction, the foundation for mixing uh, that, that that history of witchcraft and the mythos. I know this is something, uh, for example, our friend Kat Jenkins has been doing in some stuff she's been writing for Cthulhu Dark. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's something I remember doing donkeys years ago for my group in New York, which was um, you know mixing the the old Salem witch legends with um, you know the worship of Shubnigarath and uh, yeah yeah having a well having a sort of nineteen twenties take on on you know the the continuance of that into the modern day. Definitely, and something we haven't mentioned here, the kind of elephant in the room, perhaps, is you know Lamentations of the Flame Princess. I mean, it's mm. it's the right period and it's about witchcraft and so on i think you know you can look at this film it's not like this is a lamentation of the princess film by no. any means it's you know really not um, no, in, but, to- in tone it's pretty much the antithesis <laughs> but you i think i think you could take something from this film if you're a fan of the game i think it, you know I see quite a lot in it. Well, that said, apparently James Raggi absolutely fucking hates the witch. What does he know? <laughs> <laughs> so he wrote the game. I mean, I think well, we we take our own ideas from from, from his game just because he wrote it. You know, thinking of Lamentations only. You touch on the film earlier, Witchfinder General. That's definitely been a more of a Lamentations inspiration for yeah. myself. Yes. Yeah. Though. Yeah, in terms of, of tone and subject matter, they, they, yeah, that oh, and the yeah, that's the which are chalk and cheese. <laughs> I mean, it's no Vincent Price. Oh. No. <laughs> and now it's time for Ask Jackson. Once again, we have been asked to channel the spirit of Jackson Elias, to seek his wisdom from beyond the veil, and let it shine forth upon all those who would ask questions of him. You know, this is sounding a lot like witchcraft. Damn. But yes, anyway, we have a new question to ask of Jackson, and this time it comes from listener Jason Janicki. My friend's mother has recently passed away. The funeral, however, is not going to be a Christian one. My friend's mother belonged to some sort of Church of Starry Wisdom? Do you have any tips on attending unknown death rituals? Well, first of all, 
Before you go to an outfit like the Church of Starry Wisdom, I would absolutely double-check that you have understood what is meant by death ritual. There is a dangerous degree of ambiguity there. It's like being invited around for dinner. Yes. <laughs> Having yeah. an old friend for dinner. Yeah. 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 Clarify that before you waste any money on a return ticket. And also, if you see any delightfully shining little jewel in a box that's on display, don't close the lid. Really, don't. Yeah, but what happens if it's an open casket funeral and they put it in the coffin? Then he's pretty fucked then, really, isn't he? (laughs) (laughs) What's that, Jackson? He says, Jackson says, this guy that's invited you to the funeral of his mother at the Church of Starry Wisdom, he's not your friend. Book an airplane ticket, leave the country, don't come back, basically. Just make sure he never knows where to contact you. Is is Jackson going to tell him to call the police as well? (laughs) Yes. Yes, Jackson says call the police. That's that's the default answer, basically. (laughs) And also, I think for these non-traditional burial rituals or funeral rituals, that... Again, it is worth trying to find out exactly what's involved beforehand, because some of them do involve, shall we say, an unwholesome degree of audience participation. That, in some cases, there may be a degree of consumption involved. It may be a form of communion with the departed, whereby you take their essence into yourself. You know, I was thinking it was going to be a sky funeral being pecked apart by the Haunter of the Dark, but yours just puts it in a whole different fashion. (laughs) And also, uh, some of them do degenerate somewhat into necromancy. And while necromancy can be fun between consenting adults, it is, you know, it's, it's not a good habit to get into. I guess the last two tips I would provide... One as a player and one as a character. One as a, as a character, give up your, your house or your flat or whatever and, and like rent a nice basement because that's probably where you're going to want to live after this. <laughs> Maybe a crypt, kind of cool. And as a player, before your character goes to that you know, death ritual, maybe just have another character rolled up ready. <laughs> you never know. On the other hand, if the ritual is particularly interesting, do transcribe it. Again, if there are necromantic components, just to contradict myself from earlier, it could save you having to roll up that new character at some stage. You just may have to make a few amendments to the character sheet. The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from BlasphemousTomes.com. Well, we're going to sing again. Oh, God. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for those of you that don't know, people who pledge at a certain level, we have promised that, I don't know how this is thanking them, but this is thanking them by the power of song. We literally sing their praises. Well, literally or- might be the wrong word there, Scott, because I'm not <laughs> sure we sing at all. But Audio assault, I think, is the better word for it. <laughs> we provide you with an audio experience. And this one goes out to Richard Crooks. Bah. <laughs> Thank you, And on Sunday, the 18th of September, 2016, at 4pm, 
British summertime, we'll be having another group chat with our Patreon backers. If you do back us via Patreon, then please check your messages for details. And finally, what are our overall thoughts of The Witch? I thought it was a fantastic film. Uh, it's definitely a slow burn. Um, it's got a, a real art house vibe to it that a lot of horror films are missing. And I can see I can see it being off-putting to people who are perhaps expecting a, something a bit more in your face. Um, if you're looking for a modern general horror film, it's not that. No, it, it, it's like an odd mix-up of a very detailed period historical drama. And yeah, a dark fairy tale. If you're um, the standard person that writes reviews of horror films on IMDb, this isn't for you. Because <laughs> a lot of them don't like it. If, if you're a standard pers- person who writes reviews on IMDb, you probably don't listen to this <laughs> show. You probably don't. And, and if you do, don't. <laughs> to be honest, if you're a standard person, what are you doing listening to our podcast? Yeah. Why are you wasting your time with this nonsense? Uh. The one thing that it's definitely convinced me is I need to get my TV checked and I want to find out who the hell edited the DVD I watched because I swear I don't remember half of those scenes you described. Yeah, so buy the DVD and consider it a tester disc for your set. (laughs) (laughs) Can you Uh, see uh, anything on here? (laughs) But I would would very much agree, Scott. I think there are certain films which I just think are, well, I guess a bit pretentious, they masterpieces. But yeah, like, like in my mind, to me, to my taste, kind of flawless. And it might not be that I think they're the greatest film ever, but in that slot, they're like, you know, brilliant. Yeah. And I think this is one of those. I would give this 10 out of 10. Um, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I cannot think of anything about this film I don't like. No. And it, I mean, you say slow burn, it's slow burning, but the, the, there are periods of quite high drama. I think oh, yeah. there was, I was never bored with it. I think there is some ambiguity in there. And yeah, just fantastic. I, the one reservation I'd have is I think it could have been shorter. That I know when I watched it through, I'm thinking, Christ, it's taken an hour and a quarter to get to the juicy bit. That, but it's, it's an hour and a half. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It took an hour and a quarter to get to the juicy bit. But I think there's there's nothing necessarily wrong. It definitely would make a fantastic book. But I think there are elements that could have been either quickened up or certain shots could have been shortened and it could have been truncated a bit. Well, we're going to come back next time, listeners, and... When we stop recording in a few minutes, I'm going to play Matt the bit that he missed with the witch and the big mortar. Well, when we say mortar, mortar and pestle, yeah. that sounds like a little thing you grind your herbs up in. No, no this is like a bucket with a big like, fence yeah, actually, post that she's bashing like a, stuff away in. Yeah, it's more like a butter churner, isn't it? If you like. A baby churner. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Every home should have one. Uh, so we'll play that to Matt and then he can maybe, you know, give a, a, a second opinion next time. So look, we look forward to that. Hey, bring on the baby-killing goodness. (laughs) But I guess that about wraps it up for today. It's been a long one. I hope it's been interesting. It's certainly an interesting film. If you've spent all this time listening to the show and you haven't seen it, we've given quite a lot of spoilers. Uh, Well, we've actually spoiled the whole thing, but, you know, there you go. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Well, we've been downstairs and we've watched those excerpts from the Blu-ray of The Witch and Matt has now seen those scenes which he before 
somehow, what do we know, folks? Were they expurgated from his version of the DVD? Did he get some special edition? Did he? Was the screen so black that he couldn't see it? I think. Or did he, by chance, fall asleep? (laughs) (laughs) Which is it, Matt? Confess, confess your sins. It's it's having a shitty TV Um, because there is one thing that I did when I was driving back after seeing it last time was that that section with the making the broom. Uh huh. Um, I do vaguely remember seeing the full moon image, but I just think this is black. I can't see shit apart from a white outline <laughs> that I guess is the moon. Um, that It was purely just the TV is that bad that I couldn't see what was going on. I Personally, I think either you or the TV were bewitched. It's the only explanation. Oh, see what you did there. But now you've seen those scenes, Matt, does that make you reevaluate your experience of watching The Witch? Yeah, I, I think, if anything, it might make me just a little bit more frustrated that... Uh, we've seen all the uh, hint of juicy occultness and uh, the supernatural early on, and then you've still got an hour and a bit of waiting before something finally happens again. But even so, it does at least make you think that there's actually a reason for carrying on watching this. Youth of today, no attention span. What are we talking about again? Hello? What's that like to live deliciously? Ba 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 